Hello and welcome to episode number 197 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and today I am talking with yet another Sarah. This is Sarah Brady, who is a copy editor, among many other things. She copy edits romance novels. This is uh, two episodes in a row with Sarah's as guests, and I'm really pleased about this. Also, I get to write Sarah with an H in parentheses, which just gives me a really nerdy amount of joy. Sarah Brady copy-edited my novella, Lighting the Flames, and in my entirely biased opinion, she's really good at her job. But in being copy-edited, I learned a lot about how she does her job. So we discuss in depth what a copy-editor does, how her job works, and we make terrible copy-editing jokes, or at least I do. We also talk about how the choices of context and language have large consequences, and we discuss words we hate, books we love, and she has a recommendation for a book that I think many of you will want to read. Plus, after the outro music, there's a little bonus where I nerd out about gardening because, well, nerding is a thing that I do. But before I move on to the sponsorship and podcast information, I want to say thank you for tuning in. I know many of you are working out, walking the dog, cleaning and cooking and commuting, probably not all at the same time. And I also know that the audience for the podcast is growing a little bit. So if you're new, welcome. We talk about romance and all the things here, and I'm glad you're listening. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by Clean Break, a new novel from Abby Vegas that blends chick lit and romantic suspense into one irresistible New York story. It's Bridget Jones meets Beauty and the Beast. The Wall to Wall Books blog reviewed it as amazing, saying, Once in a while, you run across a book and you just really connect to it, like the author knew exactly the kind of book you loved and hit it spot on. This was one of those books. And Feeding My Addiction Book Reviews says, If there was an award for breakthrough author, I would nominate Abby Vegas. You can find Clean Break on sale everywhere books are sold. The podcast transcript this month is sponsored by Kensington, publishers of Into the Whirlwind by New York Times bestselling author Kat Martin. The shirtless saviors of Boss Incorporated are back. This elite team of private investigators are both hard-hitting and hot stuff. When her son is kidnapped, Megan O'Brien can't think of anywhere else to turn than to Boss Inc. and to her former flame and bodyguard, Dirk Reynolds. The few clues they find send them spiraling into Seattle's dangerous and dark criminal underbelly. Cat Martin's signature spine-tingling suspense, unforgettable action, and passion that made her a household name is on full display in Into the Whirlwind. Everyone wants a shirtless savior. On sale now wherever books are sold. If you're a regular listener or a reader of the transcripts, you know that I have a Patreon campaign for the podcast, and I want to thank everyone who has taken a look or even become a patron. Patreon works a little bit like Kickstarter. Instead of a single project, you fund a program and you can make monthly pledges starting with as little as $1 a month. And you will be helping me personally reach podcast goals like commissioning transcripts for the episodes that don't have one yet. You can see all the rewards and options and you can tune in after the interview to hear some of the compliments that I have for patrons who have already pledged. Thank you to everyone who has taken a look and who has sponsored the show. I really, really appreciate it. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the show. And if you want to say hello to her, you can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater and let her know how much you like the music. I kind of dig everything she sends me. It's like the best part of getting email from her. Ooh, new music. And now on with the podcast. Okay. I'd like you to introduce yourself. Sure. And then I would like you to tell me what being a copy editor means, like what do copy editors do? 
Okay. And what things drive you absolutely bananas? Oh, that's a long list. <laughs> also, I want to know, let's start with who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Sarah Brady. I am a copy editor uh, on a number of topics uh, relevant to our interests. I copy edit romance novels Yay! for several, several clients. Yes, full disclosure, Sarah was my copy editor. Yeah, and it was really fun because it came, it came right on the heels of a huge nonfiction project and I needed something to recalibrate my brain into stories and emotions and things that were not troop movements in 1941. <laughs> and, and footnotes and more footnotes and extra oh, footnotes. The footnotes. <laughs> we can we can talk a little bit later about the OCR proofreading that I do because that's actually, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. Oh, he throws his anus around her. And I am the person who stands between that and publication. Thank you. Thank you for standing between thrown anuses. Thrown anuses are <laughs> what we try to eliminate unless that is what both people are into. Do you know that I ended up as a question on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Because I, I did. I heard that and I screamed. I almost walked into a tree. <laughs> I was walking home from work and I walked next to the road I live on and I started like waving my hands in the air. I was like, <laughs> one of my neighbors is going to see me. I was walking the dogs and I was so shocked. I was like hyperventilating and nearly walked straight into a tree. Between that and when either B or Leah from the Ripped Bodice was on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell yes! Me. Like, oh Someone in NPR is in the tank. So there are many, there are many romance readers in the NPR world and I, I just love it. it. I love that. So you copy it at romance and other things. Yes. Now I don't want you to talk about like specific books because obviously that would be completely uncool. That would be uncool. But what exactly does a copy editor do? Because I know there's the copy editor and the line editor and the content editor and other editors. What do you do? Primarily, what a copy editor is doing, in addition to looking for things like misspelled words and the wrong use of punctuation and all sorts of other mechanical things that are wrong, the copy editor is enforcing style. Uh, there are a number of different style books. The primary one that's used... Uh, for magazine journalism and for uh, books mostly is the Chicago Manual of Style. Uh, it is our Bible and we love it. There's, <laughs> there's also one called Words into Type. And some publishers use AP, which is not a particularly book-friendly style. It's intended for wire copy, which has to be short <laughs> mm -hmm. because, you know, because they used to transmit it over wires and that took a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, so that that style includes more abbreviations and more like AP style. You you only spell out numbers that are under ten. Chicago style, you spell out numbers that are under one hundred and large multiples. Hmm. So you use words to say four thousand instead of numerals. Uh, and you know AP is more used for newspaper copy because in newspapers you want to save space because ink costs money. Yes. In books. It's less of a concern. Um, so most of the clients that I uh, uh, work for uh, in the book realm use a style that is based on the Chicago Manual of Style. And that style guide governs, governs things, not just numbers, but what words are capitalized aside from proper nouns. Ooh, 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 ooh. Like, like internet? Right. Uh, that actually is more dependent mostly on the dictionary. The dictionary I use most of the time is Merriam-Webster's Collegiate, and uh -huh. Merriam-Webster is still capitalizing internet. Uh, I know there are some people who prefer American Heritage, bless their hearts. Uh, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure what American Heritage does with regard to internet, but, you know, that's, uh, 
another thing that copy editors do is be aware of the way language and usage are changing. Uh, I was at the American Society of Copy Editors annual conference in Portland last month, uh, and AP deciding to lowercase internet, that news came out on the last day of the conference. And there were cheers. <laughs> I can imagine. Because there are a lot of copy editors who are like, it's a medium. It should be lowercase like newspaper. So and they, you legitimately argue about things like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, like, it, my, my little nerd heart is so happy. <laughs> well, it was, it, was, it was very funny. It was the first time I'd ever been to the conference. Um, it was 600 copy editors across a variety of mediums in one place. And... You know, you can't generalize that much about an entire field, but many of us are introverts. Oh, and really? You, yeah, you can kind of tell who the extroverted copy editors are because they're staring at the other person's shoes. <laughs> but, you know, alcohol helps. <laughs> it helps at all conferences. That's why we're it all at the bar. And it does. It was a really, it was a wonderful conference. I had a great time. <laughs> so when you do copy editing, mm -hmm. You are basically making sure that the language and the, the, the style adheres to the standard which you follow. Right. Uh, and, you know, a lot of what I, you know, some people don't understand what I do. A lot of people don't understand what I do. A lot of what I do is not necessarily telling someone that something is wrong. Uh, it's telling someone that the way they've used certain words or the way they've placed punctuation might confuse readers about their meaning. Right. Because um, it's about meaning, not necessarily rules. Right. And you can find, you know, the, the different book, the different style books differ in their rules. Um, That's not so, annoying. Right. Right. And switching between projects and clients, you got to keep a lot of, you got to keep a lot of stuff straight in your head. Um, I, I, and I often can't keep it straight in my head. I have an entire Dropbox folder of style guides for my various clients. And I just flip through them sometimes. I'm like, okay, so who uses voicemail as two words and who hyphenates breakup and... Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's a, you know... That's a, not yeah. something I could keep track of in my head. I, I try not to actually rely on my head. I try to rely on the guide because if yeah. I start trying to do it by memory, I'll mess We're all up. screwed. So you're, you're basically uh, citing all your sources while you do it. I'm real big on citing my sources. I spent some time earlier in my career as a fact checker. And if I'm correcting uh, the spelling of, you know, a, a proper name in someone's book, I cite a source. I cite Britannica or I cite that person's official site or I swear to God, the number of books I've read that don't know there are two F's in Georgia O'Keeffe like drives me up a wall. <laughs> Three E's, two F's. <laughs> someday, if I have, you know, I know I have this very particular image of the afterlife. I have a feeling that someday in the afterlife, Georgia O'Keeffe is going to find you and be like, dude, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. I owe you. Her, her and the fact that Jack Daniels is not a plural. It's a possessive. No, it's totally a possessive. It is Tennessee whiskey made by a gentleman named Jack Daniel. Yes. Yeah. And so I'm forever putting that apostrophe in there. So why do people hate copy editors? Why is there copy editor hate? Well, people don't being don't like being told they're wrong. Um, uh, well, okay, that makes sense. Especially especially with something that is emotional and personal to them, like language, and uh, writing and stories, and writing and stories. Um, as I've, you know, I've always been this person, even when I wasn't getting paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> 
but as I've gotten older, I've uh, learned more to only really do this when I'm being paid for it and when I am directly asked. Uh, I am not the person on Facebook who is correcting other people's grammar because that person is a dick. Well, and it's, you know what? I appreciate that because hey, that person you know, is kind of a dick. It's not my business if someone doesn't know the difference between your, your, and your. I mean, I make my own judgments, but I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> Do you know how copy editors console people? How? There, there, there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's a good one. I love copy editor jokes. Um, and I think people get frustrated, I would assume, um, the way that I work with a lot of my clients is that I don't ever see their work again after I've turned it in. Right. Uh, I make my changes, I make my notes, I make my suggestions, I return it to the assigning editor or the managing editor, and I never see if they have taken my suggestions uh, or if they have steaded all my changes. Um, and that's 90% of the time, that's fine with me. It's their book. Uh, right. It's not mine. And my name is not usually on it. Um, and I, I, I know that some copy editors, uh, a lot of what we, we copy editors take for granted is not widely known to other people. Uh, and so we might be making changes that are just very basic to us. And the author might feel that we are uh, destroying her masterpiece or changing or, the language in a way that she doesn't want. Exactly. Um, I find it best uh, to have a conversation, if at all possible, before starting the work about the style she's going for. If, mm -hmm. you know, if someone has written her dialogue in a very colloquial way and doesn't want that changed, that's fine with me. Mm -hmm. um, I just need to be told that before I start working, because otherwise, you know, I try to enforce standard American English on it. And right. maybe that's not what she wants. So do you do you work on some of the books that use, like, for example, a brogue or... Um, there's I've, a word for that and it's falling you, out of my brain right now. I, I've done um, several set in, in the American South and one, one thing the author wants to do is drop the G's on gerunds, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is fine. <laughs> I just need to be told up front not okay. to. And, you know, after I see it 14 times, you know, I stop fixing it. Right, of course. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, I think what the copy editor does, especially maybe for an author who's new, can be sort of like a bucket of cold water thrown on their book, especially if they see the manuscript, it's covered in red track changes and they think that the apocalypse has happened. And it might not even be that much is wrong. They're just, you know, putting commas where they're supposed to be. It just, it looks like a lot. I once read a theory that if you've studied music and then you learn grammar, mm. you have a better understanding of how commas work because phrases sort of translate between music, especially if you play an instrument, you need to breathe. Mm -hmm. that, that pausing within phrases of music is a little bit similar to pausing within phrases of commas, because commas not only sort of separate dependent clauses, but they also function as pieces of a sentence. Do you think that's right. possibly true? I think it's true in some cases. Um, there are some places where you need a comma to indicate meaning, and it's not necessarily where a person would breathe. Uh, I shoots just and had, leaves. Hmm? Yeah, shoots, shoots and leaves. Um, in the in the case of restrictive commas, a restrictive clause is something that is necessary to the meaning of the sentence, and it has to be enclosed in commas. 
so if I say my brother Phil, I have three brothers. So in that sentence, the word Phil, which is his name, has to be enclosed in commas because his name is essential to tell you which of my brothers I'm talking about. Right. If I were to say my sister-in-law, Missy, I only have the one. So the commas aren't necessary there because I can say either my sister-in-law or Missy and I'm talking about the same person. Huh. Yeah. How did you learn all this? It's in the book. <laughs> it's in the book? It's in the book. It's in the Chicago Manual style. Um, I had, when I graduated from college, I moved to New York. I went to a postgraduate program at Columbia University uh, that was for people interested in publishing. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got my first job. And I was hired as an administrative assistant at a magazine. And I was bored out of my skull because after I had filed everything and done payroll and cleaned up the file room, I was like, please give me something to do. Been there. And so they asked me to help out with copy editing and proofreading. And that was 13 years ago. Uh, And now I do this for a living. Um, And I always had an aptitude for finding typos and things that seem wrong. Isn't it weird sometimes that they jump out at you? Yeah. Like, whoa, okay. They uh, they particularly jump out at me. <laughs> I was um, doing research yesterday, and someone used a um, apostrophe s for plural when it should have not had an apostrophe. Yeah. I can hear you like cringing and moaning over there, and I'm sort of like, yeah, okay, blah blah blah, sales text, and then this apostrophe s is for me the biggest thing on the screen. I'm like. I don't want to buy this from you. You don't know how to use possessives. And then I'm like, am I a dick? Am I a dick for thinking that? I got a marketing email um, from a company that sells a lot of personalized stuff. Oh, God. And it was something about, like, welcome to the Bradys that they had superimposed on a T-shirt. And it was B-R-A-D-Y apostrophe S. And I'm like, the Brady? Just the one of us? (laughs) Like, there's a lot of us, believe me. We've got Cousin Tom, we've got Cousin Wayne. It's There's ridiculous. a whole bunch on TV. I know. They're all over the place. <laughs> it's it's, so it's like there was no food in Ireland, so we all had to come here and have more kids. <laughs> so you, you trained, you did your thing, and you ended up copy editing romances. What is that like? Do you like <laughs> doing that? I do. Um, I, I prefer editing fiction to nonfiction. Uh, it just goes faster to me when there's a story. Um, I like, I mean, I liked romance novels already. Um, so what, how it happened, I got laid off from that magazine job I mentioned. Um, the, the, the magazine closed, which was (laughs) personally devastating to me. I don't recommend getting, uh, laid off from your dream job when you're 25. Oh, dude. It will, it will really do your head in for a while. Can you say what magazine? It was called Premiere. Uh, it was about movies. I remember that magazine. Yeah, it went out of business in 2007. Oh, man. It was very sad. Uh, And so during my, you know, several months long period of moping on my couch and watching the Food Network and collecting unemployment, uh, I answered an ad on Media Bistro. Whoa, nice. And I did a test and they sent me a book and that's... Off you go. how it started, yeah. It's... There's something about the logic of it that appeals to me. I like to put things in order. Yep. Um, you wouldn't know that by looking at my house. But, <laughs> uh, you know, as far as work is concerned. Um, and, and so from there, it sort of 
it sort of snowballed. I, you know, all my friends knew I was looking for work. A lot of my friends work in book publishing. And so they would say, Hey, we need some help over here. I believe you connected me with a job at one point. Yes, uh, I remember that. Yeah, it was wonderful. <laughs> do you still do that? Yes, I do. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and so it just, it grew into a business. It's not my entire income. Um, but it's a, it's a good chunk of it. And, uh, I, 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 I like getting paid to read. Uh, one of my clients paid me to proofread Pride and Prejudice when they were putting it into E. Oh, that's I've terrible. I've never read it before. I'm so sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> that must've just been so terrible for I, you. I, wanted to, I kept wanting to standardize the capitalization and, and my editor is like, please don't change Jane Austen. Just leave Jane alone. <laughs> Jane alone. <laughs> she went through enough. <laughs> But yeah, I, I proofread that and then I watched like three movie adaptations in a weekend and my friends are like, okay, you need to come back to the 21st century now. <laughs> so when you are copy editing a romance, mm-hmm. I know not only do you talk about, because I know from having been copy edited um, by you, that not mm-hmm. only do you address things like commas, semicolons, dashes, which I will fuck up for the rest of my life and I've just learn to accept that hey, there's there's three kinds of them and nobody ever knows which one is right i prefer the m dash in most applications what's an m dash do uh an m dash is often used um especially in dialogue where you would normally use a semicolon some publishers don't like semicolons in dialogue and so you can use it to join two independent clauses rather than a period and is that a dash with two spaces on either side or is that a dash where the letters are right next to the dash uh almost all publishers in print, uh, close up the spaces on the sides of the dash. On the internet, you're likely to leave them open because it's less reliable about where the line break will be. Yes, that I knew. I yeah. I, yeah. I am a I break all kinds of style rules just for ease of reading on a screen. Yeah. For example, um, in HTML, you have a br tag or an, a p tag, and a p encloses it in what's technically a paragraph. I'm but with Right. But with our style sheet, a P means that there's a space, there's a whole line between the paragraphs, which makes it easy on your eyeballs. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you've read our site. We use a lot of words. You do use All at once. <laughs> <laughs> like lots of them in a row. So you have to break up the visible paragraphs and like, intersperse different, you know, large or small elements to make that not just like this wall of words of, oh, right. my God, make it stop. But that's a totally different style than print. Right. Um, BuzzFeed actually puts their style guide online. Um, and it's, it's kind of a neat thing to peruse the way they have adapted rules for, for the medium. Um, one of the, the talks I attended at the copy editors conference was by the copy editors from the onion and the AV club. Okay. That's seriously cool. Was that they a cool session? Are, they are brilliant. Um, they have an entire section of their style guide devoted to star Wars and to game of Thrones and to various other, things that are relevant to their readers' interests. Uh, there was a whole argument over the spelling of the word donut. It was it was hilarious. <laughs> it nice. might have been hilarious to people who aren't copy editors, maybe. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Like you, always, you always capitalize Wookiee, even though it's a species, which is not something you would do with any other species. But in that context, it's like a proper name. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. That's so cool. Oh, my gosh. I'm nerding out over here. <laughs> like, I'm writing down a note. Link to style guides for... They, the AV Club's uh, copy desk is on Twitter, and they're very funny. <laughs> as you might assume. 
I, I remember seeing the NPR um, standards mm-hmm. people when the, the llama was loose on the street and everyone was covering it. The uh. NPR standards editor was instructing everyone, it is an alleged llama. It could be an alpaca. It could be an alpaca. And I was like, alleged llama. Copy editing and fact checking. You are my favorite human being, NPR standards person. Alleged llama. Could be an alpaca. It could be two kids in a suit. We They were pretty far away. Yeah, like we don't even know. <laughs> so one of the things that you do, I also know, is not only addressing language and, and punct- or not only addressing punctuation and the use of it and how to make a sentence make sense, mm-hmm. but also you address language. Yeah, um, we try, uh, we, I'm going to speak for all the copy editors in the world. Feel free, because um, they're, they're, I think that they're fine with that. We all we're agree mon- on everything, right? We're monolith, it's okay. Um, <laughs> what, I mean, a copy editor at, its, at, at, her, at her most basic is another pair of eyes on the manuscript. Right. And is another point of view. Um, and so... And copy editors are trained to read for nuance. And so we can look out for things like unintentionally uh, insensitive usage or outdated terms. Um, if someone is using the word oriental to refer to a person, uh, that is something that the copy editor should note and politely point out that that's not a thing we do anymore. And if your book is a contemporary you really don't do it anymore. The the character saying it is going to sound like an old bigot. <laughs> and if the character is an old bigot. Right. It's all intent. Your words, words have power. Oh, and wait, what? Yeah. You know. <laughs> so if you see a character using language that is potentially offensive. You flag it. You call it out. You And in my case, since I'm not generally seeing the text again, you just... Pray they listen to you. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, we, we try to call out usage that people may not know is problematic if they're not spending all their time thinking about these issues. You want to uh, hear the funniest copy editing mistake that I made? I absolutely. still laugh about this. So in, the, in my first book, Beyond Heaving Bosoms, mm-hmm. I used um, lingus instead of lingam. Nice. And the copy editor was like, you are currently referring to an Irish airline, and I believe you are trying to refer to a Volvo. And I was like, this <laughs> is the best copy edit ever. That's tremendous. I was super I like that proud a lot. of myself for that one. That's like the best mistake I've made in a while. The, the, I, I forget the, they're not spoonerisms. They might be called eggcorns. For when someone hears, you know, because we have both spoken and written language, someone hears something but never sees it written. Yes. Um, I do that a lot. I, I, I was reading something a few weeks ago, and the author had written that someone turned a deaf ear. Uh, instead of, you know, an ear that can't hear, one that is dead. A dead ear. Yeah. A deaf ear. And death, I was, death ear. Deaf ear, yeah. Oh, it's like that's not a thing. There's a couple of those I noticed that when you hear it, when you only hear it, and you never see it written. Mm-hmm. There um, should should have becomes should of of. Right. That's oh, very God. that's very common. It is, and sometimes it can be used in dialectical dialogue, but 
a little of that goes such a very, very, very long way. Right. Dialect written down is sort of like saffron. Yes. It needs to be used very sparingly. Yes. That's, it's, that's it's a very good... expensive language. <laughs> I have a, a good friend, um, you know, a voracious reader, and once in a business meeting uh, said something about a paradigm shift. And everybody in the room sort of stared at her. And uh, yeah, she's going to kill me for telling that story. But <laughs> she'd never heard the word paradigm said out loud. And, you know, it's a thing. There's a couple words that I have I have happily mispronounced and then realized that, you know, um, it's funny that way. I mean, even my kids, like, for example, uh, instead of regular, they're, they for a very long time, they thought it was regular. Yeah, yeah. Regular. And my when my older son was a toddler, he routinely mixed up the syllables for sofa and called it the fosa. Nice. Yeah. So we still use these words and they're like, mom, God, (laughs) it's embarrassing. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So you were saying earlier that language changes. It It changes really fast now. And I think a lot of it it changes fast. It's uh, a lot of folks who, who sort of focus on this professionally are concerned about the loss of regional usage because of the way our culture is becoming a little more universal. Obviously, it's splintered into channels. You can, you know, you can get all of your media from where you want it. It's not just, you know, the six o'clock news on NBC anymore. But people around the country are starting to speak the same way because we all listen to the same uh, sources. And so some of some small some regionalisms are beginning to go away. Um. But yeah, language is changing faster than it ever has. Uh, One of the things that I focus on when I'm copy editing historicals is using the date of first usage in the dictionary to make sure that a character should be using that word. That's a thing I see a lot of readers picking up on too. Yeah, yeah. Um, A lot of language was coined in the 20th century around those two world wars. Um, And so if you're writing something that's set in the 19th, you might not be able to use some of the terminology that we do. I feel like, I feel like it was in the season premiere of Outlander that Claire kept saying something was okay, which is a term that was coined in the 19th century. And I'm like, isn't Jamie wondering what she's talking about? (laughs) (laughs) I, and I, I copied a book a few years ago that was set in ancient Rome and I was, you know, going through my word list and making my usual set of objections. And then in the, the letter to the writer, because for most of my clients, you write an editorial letter and explain what you've done and uh, cite your sources. And then for that one, I said, well, they wouldn't be speaking English anyway. <laughs> so, oh, well. so I really feel like it's fine. <laughs> I always I always like film world, worlds like in How to Train Your Dragon, all the adults are Scottish and all the kids are American. <laughs> sure. That's my favorite. Because mm-hmm. that just creates two completely separate languages. Exactly. <laughs> um, what are some things that you see frequently that you wish would change? Well. <laughs> that, I mean, I know it's a relatively small list. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm like most other copy editors, not an easily irritated person. <laughs> yeah. You, you kind of have to have a very thick skin, I'm assuming. I have... I have my list of copy editor pet peeves, which overlaps in some ways with my list of reader pet peeves. Hmm. Um, Some of them, and that's partly the reason why I would not want to copy edit uh, a writer that I 
really enjoy reading, you know, for free, <laughs> the ones I give money to rather than the other way around. You know, I don't want to know if, you know, Julie James does not know the difference between your, your, and your. I think that would break my heart. <laughs> I'm sure she does. She went to law school. Um, so one of the things, the, the, the immediate thing that sort of gets to me, and I, I don't know if this is a difference between the kind of writers who plot ahead of time or the kind who make it up as they go along. Uh, when they, they sort of forget how they spelled a character's name earlier in the book. Oh, crap. Um, I, there was one series that I was enjoying very much. Uh, it was about, you know, it was a family of bajillion siblings and they all had their own book. And one of them was named Jonathan. And at various points, his name would be spelled O-N or A-N. Oh, no. And I never actually read his book because... You were I afraid there, that maybe there's two of them. Yeah, maybe maybe she's just been switching back and forth to let on that there's an evil twin. And I should really read that book. But it was it was so frustrating to me. This was, this was not something I was copy editing. This was something I was reading for pleasure. And it was, it was in the finished book. And it was... And, you know, I, I know there are lots of pressures on publishers. I know they're, you know, trying to get books out faster and cheaper. But especially with series, you need to make a, a, a Bible. You need to make a list and make sure that, like, people's eye colors don't change in between books and their names are spelled the same. And I know just what you mean. Yeah, it's that that is particularly frustrating to me. Um, it. And I, I understand how easily it can happen, um, but it, I, I think writers should make a list. I know a couple of people who, uh, who specialize in making series Bibles. Like they, they will, that's, the, that's what they do professionally. Yeah. That's, that's one, that's one thing that I love about the Kit Roka Beyond books. Yeah. I, I am just awed by what a professional product they put out. Um, I, I know they have. Uh, a lady who does their series continuity and she's incredible at it. I, I just, I love those books. I have, I have trouble with some self-published titles sometimes. Um, and I think they do a really nice job in making it the most polished product it possibly can be before they sell it to readers. That's, I think that in what, in a lot of ways, readers are very forgiving of a book that makes them have powerful feelings. Yeah. But I, and I can, I can do that too. Hey, I read that whole series with Jonathan and Jonathan and Than. Yeah. And Than. Yeah. I, I haven't read the whole thing, but I, re I read like six of them uh, before it really got to me. <laughs> um, yeah. I can be, I can be swept away in it. It's just that it interrupts the book for me in a way that, that, that really annoys me. And it, it, it interrupts the book for me and makes me feel disrespected as a reader uh, in a way that I think a lot of readers might not. And it's interesting that line is in a different place for every reader. Mm -hmm. Like the things that pull someone out of a book are different from the things that pull someone else out of a book. Right. And there are two totally different sets of things. Right. And you have, you have like two areas working against you, both as a reader and a copy editor. Mm -hmm. So you have the, the rules and the style and the usage problems where you're like, Oh, well, hello, stray comma. Yeah. And then you have Jonathan Than. Yeah. Or I have, if it's, I don't read much paranormal or fantasy, but if, uh, in, in the stuff that I do, um, 
I, I want there to be rules and I want the rules to be adhered to. Like if you've made up a language and a word is a noun, you should know what its plural form is. <laughs> Uh, and and sometimes I find that consistent, right? It's like you know, J.R.R. Tolkien was a linguist. Like he made up languages. He was pretty good at it. It's a hard thing to do. Um, it is something it is. of an art. It is. Uh, and so, yeah, that's that's something that'll pull me out if I'm like, wait a minute, you were using that as a plural, and now you're using it as a singular. Is it like sheep? Are these aliens like sheep? It's like male. Is- yeah, male and and email sheep. Exactly. Do you know what word? Like, I have a couple words that I really hate, and 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 I try not to talk about it because it makes me sound like a pedantic dick bag. Is it the one that's a synonym for damp? Moist? No. Yeah. Moist. Hate- moist doesn't bother me. Oh. Moist just makes me think of Duncan Hines, and then I want to have cake. I can only deal with it in relation to cake. Yeah, but. but- in any other application, it like it makes my spine sort of bend back on itself. I, oh, I hate that word. I hate emails. Yeah, I hate that word. You'd it, rather it be email. Mail is plural and mail is singular, and email is already plural. It doesn't need to be emails. Oh, that's it a good just, one. It, it it I don't. It's it's that is what makes my spine bend back on itself. Emails. I need to go check emails. Oh, <sighs> yeah. Or I need to go write a blog. Like the whole thing. I, I correct that constantly. No, it's a blog post. Or entry works too, but blog the, the blog is like the whole compendium of all the content. If I was going to go write my blog, I'd need like 11 more years. Yeah, that would take a while. It would be very arduous. <laughs> so emails is just, oh, mm-hmm. I got to go check emails. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah. Just, oh, that's, that's a word that always makes me twitch. Mm-hmm. And then there's phrases like, um, it is what it is. Ugh, that's not even a thing. Thank you. Thank you. Like, I've had to bar my husband from saying it. Like, oh, it is what it is. No, that's like passive-aggressive complaining. Yeah. Stop, like, stop coming at me with these weak-ass tautologies and come up with an opinion. <laughs> yes. Oh, are, and just throwing it out there? <laughs> are you just throwing it out there about it is what it is? I, someone on Twitter several months ago said something about circling back oh reach out and circle back and I was like are you doing the breath stroke <laughs> reach out and circle back. reach out and circle back that's how your arms move in the breaststroke like <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was a sports journalist I just want you to know I'm breaststroking right now <laughs> it totally is reach out circle back sometimes and you know when sometimes when I'm copy editing this. I need to sort of wave my hands around in the air to figure out what the characters are doing and to the other day I was trying to shake hands with myself <laughs> to figure and I was I was debating dance. I was debating if it was worth like leaning over the cubicle to my coworker to be like can you shake my hand and let me see if I can do this with my thumb <laughs> uh, to see if it was like physically possible <laughs> I am crying now I just picture people listening to this episode, like standing in the middle of the street, breaststroking and shaking their own hands. And most of the copy editors I know who do stuff, like I used to work for a magazine that had a lot of um, fitness. It it was a fitness and healthy living focused publisher. And so we'd be copy editing instructions for yoga poses or other, you know, weightlifting and and trying to write out how to do stuff like that with good form. You'd you'd be sitting there at your desk, just sort of waving your arms in the air, and <laughs> and and occasionally you'd go into someone else's office and be like, "Okay, I'm a I'm a do I'm gonna read this out loud and you do it, and we'll see if it looks like 
you know, a deadlift. So now, of course, I have to ask if you ever have to do that with sex scenes. Sometimes. Oh, gosh. I, like I, in, in what context do, does um, the choreography of a sex scene become troublesome? Generally, um, you want to wonder if the person on top is levitating. <laughs> Um, sometimes it's like he's up on his elbows and he reaches down between to, lo- to rub at her little pearl, but is he, how is he holding himself up? Also, he's got his head v- vaguely in the area of her chest and how tall is he again? <laughs> and there's, there's some of that. There's some making sure that people take off clothing only once. Oh uh, yes. That's yeah. important. I have done very little copy editing of sex scenes that have more than two participants, and uh, and that is that is a mitzvah for me because uh, it's easier to keep track of two people. <laughs> I cannot even imagine writing and then copy editing Menage. Yeah, it you you have to be real good at managing your pronouns. That's for sure. Especially if it's like multiple, like a more more than three. Right. Got, like, yeah, that's a lot of parts. And I think it extends beyond love scenes. It extends to fights. It extends to oh, yeah. sports. Like, think of someone trying to, you know, describe a basketball game. Like, <laughs> that can be excruciating in the wrong hands. Oh, yeah, that would, those would be my hands. We should not be doing that. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. So what are the other things that happen in romance that are really unique that you only see there and have to deal with? Gosh, well... I've copy edited more retired Navy SEALs than actually exist in the world. <laughs> I'm sure like, I swear, have. I don't think there are this many of them. <laughs> I, want, I want more military romances that are about somebody other than the SEAL. Like, I would legit read a series about the, the people who work in the armed forces who do, like, maintenance, cooking, yeah. garbage collection, yeah, laundry. Can you imagine it, military laundry? Oof. I know. <laughs> talk, talk about be- copy editing some smells. They must be amazing at getting stains out. Right? Yeah. Seriously. One one thing that will often stop me short as an editor um, is just when the, the world I'm reading doesn't bear much similarity to the world we live in, um, and it's a con- contemporary and it's supposed to. Um, I, I've worked on a number of Westerns that seem to be set in this magical land where everybody who does agriculture is white. Um, and that's not really how we get our food in this country anymore. Um, and so if you're running like a, a, a beef ranch, everybody who's working with those cows is not likely to be named Steve. And, you know, it's just, it's a thing that'll take me out of the book and, and make me wonder what the author is trying to say. Um, Julia Spencer Fleming had a great book a few years ago, um, that was about, the mystery focused on undocumented immigrants working in dairy farms in upstate New York. Oh, which one in the series? It's uh, I Shall Not Want. I remember that one. And that book was incredible. And uh, I'm unfamiliar with a lot of large-scale agriculture, but after I read it, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Um, but And so I, I, would, <laughs> I, I would hope a lot of writers who are interested in, or not even interested in, but setting their books among the world of the people who who do jobs that that are unfamiliar to a lot of people like running ranches how your food gets made how your food gets made your food gets made by <laughs> different people than we see a lot of romance novels written about i think in some ways it's a nostalgia for an imagined past yes 
it's it's thinking about some golden age that existed 40 years ago but that that wasn't what existed 40 years ago 40 years ago was the you know the the end of vietnam yep. <laughs> 40 years ago was the middle of the second wave of the women's movement it right. was beaver cleaver and everyone you know, happy to do what they were doing and be assigned prescribed roles that they stayed within yeah, there seems to be this nostalgia for like the first three years of the 1950s, except if Korea wasn't happening. Yeah. So you uh, have to learn, you have to know a lot of history and cultural context, too. Uh, yeah. And a lot of that comes with the with the reading with. Uh, Especially because you, you do a lot of nonfiction. You do this for a few years and it I, I do much more fiction than I do nonfiction, but the nonfiction books tend to be real long. <laughs> yeah. I remember so, you telling me how many, many, many pages of footnotes in some of those books. And I was like, Oh my God. It was, I, I hope someone is really enjoying that book. That's all. I'll someone out there is reading that book and is so excited. Like I, they are just having all the joy because you know that there's another nerd out there whose heart goes pitter patter at the idea of 750 footnotes. Yeah. And we've taken all the anuses out of it. So it's safe <sighs> for reading aloud. Well, see, now I'm disappointed. <laughs> now I'm bummed out. Yeah. One thing I've noticed as a reader is the proliferation of certain words that get moved from book to book. Like, because, yeah. you know, romance, romance authors are also romance readers. So all of a sudden, all the clouds are scudding across the sky. Huh. It's like there's a word that that shows up and then all of a sudden it's everywhere. And or there's there's ideas that pop up in a book and then all of a sudden they're copied everywhere. Sort of like how um, Georgette Heyer made up details about the Regency. And right. now we, we take them as as fact because we've read them in like umpty badrillion books. Yeah. Is that something that you see as well? Maybe. <laughs> um, no concrete examples of it are coming to mind. I'm more likely to, to focus on if there's a particularly unusual construction that an author uses repeatedly mm -hmm. or a usual construction that an author uses repeatedly. Um, I, I, I've noted, you know, if you're, and, and I believe you've pointed this out before, if your male main character thinks every, uh, first person internal monologue of his begins with damn. Yes. Why? Why? <laughs> why does that happen? Do, do all men think like that? I, I don't think so. Although yeah. a good amount, a good proportion of my internal monologue starts with fuck. But... <laughs> or God damn it. Yeah, exactly. What now? <laughs> oh, for Christ's sake. Yeah. <laughs> So when, when something sounds repetitive within a manuscript, it is something I will point out. Um, I have a few clients who will send me, I guess, who allow their authors to express preferences about their copy editing. Uh -huh. uh, and so sometimes they will request the same copy editor for subsequent books in a series. And that always makes it easier because you're familiar with the person's voice. You're familiar with which homonyms they might mix up. Right. Um, and you are, you, you've met the characters before. It's, I, I find it very difficult, uh, to do the sixth book in a series right. um, without having read any of the previous ones. And I'm like, okay, who's this? Whose kid is this? Whose wife is this? Why am I supposed to care <laughs> about stop introducing characters? <laughs> and, and, and that's very rewarding to the reader. And I've been the reader for whom that is very rewarding. But as the copy editor, you're like, okay, how many brothers does he have? <laughs> Why does the spelling of Jonathan keep changing? Exactly. 
<laughs> so you notice then uh, the, the, the literary ticks of different writers. Yeah. They, they sort of pop out like a pattern. Mm-hmm. Like I happen to know I really like the word just and I try not to use it just so much. Mm-hmm. Are there ticks that you're sort of like, yeah, it's just the style or do you try to point them out to make the writing a little bit less, um, I don't want to say interruptive or obtrusive, just to, just to make it not pop out to someone else. Uh, I will note it in some places. Uh, mostly what I'm doing is not, uh, to be perfectly honest, I'm usually on a short deadline and a flat fee. So what I'm doing is not re-architecting someone's entire book. Right. right. You're getting um, through it to do the consistent I'm, application of grammatical and language rules. Right. Sometimes it's triage copy editing. You stop the bleeding and make sure that it's, the book is not bleeding to death. Triage copy editing? Yes. Oh my goodness. Sometimes you just want to fix the most egregious things that might completely derail the book. Yep. And then it's just sort of like, yeah, and that's about all I can do. Yeah. And triage copy editing. One of my favorite, um, I've been in, I have been in a rut for about two months, I've only been rereading in my spare time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been rereading the entire Shelley Lawrenston Pride series because <sighs> it's so silly and diverting. It, it pushes a button in my brain that just makes, that, that restores my soul. <laughs> that restores I know exactly my, what you mean. Yeah. And Nobody writes is, like her either. She no, you're right, and she has a lot of these stylistic tics, and it's very conversational and sometimes ungrammatical, and she capitalizes pronouns in a way that drives me up a goddamn wall. But I, <laughs> I love those books, and and they've been a lifesaver for like the last two months. I have not felt like reading anything new. Have you read her Call of Crows series? I haven't, and I saw the review. And I'm, I'm kind of, so I I only read the pride series. I got, I got like the one, the eighth or ninth book in the series on NetGalley. Mm -hmm. And I read the the blurb copy and I thought when they called the character a honey badger, it was a euphemism. Nope, nope, nope. And then I read the book. Yep. Okay. (laughs) Right now. and, And this is risky because, you know, breaking someone's reading slump is a really hard thing to do. Yeah. But I already know you're on board with the unique awesomeness that is Shelley Lawrenston and the way in which she builds a world that is so very similar and very close to reality. Yeah. But with characters who sound like real people. All right. So the first book in the series is The Unleashing and it's 99 cents right now. Okay. I will. Yeah. All right. I'm going to send you the link. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to send you the link because it's really un- really important that you at least have it when you get back to, um, you know, reading new books. The thing I love about this series is that I've read her Pride series and I've read the other books that she's written. And, and I love the dragons because they're mm-hmm. like super violent, campy fairy tales of, of female kick-assery. That's sort of, that. that's her aesthetic. Yeah. Super violent, campy fairy tales. Yes, that is her, that is her jam and I am so there for it. Yeah. And yeah. I was, I was doing a, a podcast interview with Lauren Dane um, recently and she was saying that the thing about her, about Laurenston's books is that you, you were used to the alpha hero. Mm-hmm. All of her heroines are alpha heroines. Yeah. They take exactly zero shit. Yeah. So 
I, I, okay, this is a risky because it's, it's really hard to interrupt somebody's reading slump. And I have totally been in the slump where you just have to reread things because that's what your brain wants to do. It doesn't want to construct anything new. It wants to revisit things that are fun and familiar. But the, for the first book is 99 cents. And the second book is so good. Like the first one is really enjoyable and mm -hmm. incredibly fun and emotional and really satisfying. And then the second book is even better. So the thing that I think you will like best is that the, it's a whole Norse world. It's all Norse mythology. Mm. And all of the major Norse gods have sort of representatives on Earth who are somewhat human, but also superhuman in a lot of ways. Is Chris Hemsworth there? Is it Chris Hemsworth? No, but is a lot of men a lot like him because Thor mm. has a crew, but they're all kind of dumb. <laughs> and all the other clans make that fun. Exactly. All the other clans make fun of how dumb and literal the Thor warriors are. The Thor clan yes. is. They're just like, oh my God, just just so stupid. Would you just right. stop? And they like to torment them. Like that one scene, there's a huge party and they keep stealing the Thor warriors. I don't want to give away any too much, but they keep stealing their food. And they're like so confused. Like, did I eat that? Did I, did I eat that already? Where'd it go? I think oh. one of my favorite details in the Pride series is that they just mock the the lions for how vain they are. Yes, I just I, I fucking love that. So the thing about the the crows is that um, so there's this one guy who is always going to this coffee shop where this young woman is working at the at the desk, and she's a an Afghanistan veteran. She's the only one who will serve him because he's got that sort of flat thousand yard dead inside stare and he scares everybody else. And she figures that he's just got PTSD. He's shell shocked. He's a vet. She'll she'll serve him coffee. It's not a big deal. And maybe, you know, maybe she'll give him some you know brochures about wounded warrior projects, try to get him some help. Hmm. But in, in one night she ends up going out to, you know, take out the trash from the coffee shop and she sees she sees a pimp beating up his 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 um his hooker and she tries to intervene and he stabs her right in the heart and kills mm. her and this guy who she show, serves coffee to shows up and calls out for this one particular norse goddess to come and save her the the fact that she's reborn as this super awesome like creature that's partially human like she can be killed but she can also do some really rad shit she also insists that if she accepts the goddess's offer it's the goddess is Skuld. If she accepts Skuld's offer, her dog has to come too. Yay! So, so the dog also becomes a crow. And it's so fucking good. Like That sounds awesome. It's like, if you like the Pride series and you like the Dragon series, this takes all the best parts and puts them together. Okay. Okay. You got me. Okay. I'm going to yeah. send you a link. Awesome. Okay. You, 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 it's so good. And I'm so <laughs> hoping that you like it because it's so good. I have a vacation coming up at the end of the month and I'm hoping that can reboot some of my, uh, my, my new book mojo. I'm, I, I'm so with, with the new books, if, you know, if I'm reading something in my free time that I hate that I've spent money on. Oh, it's the worst. I get so angry. It's, it's like, the okay, worst. I've spent all my working hours working on something I didn't care for. And now I'm on a packed rush hour blue train and I'm reading something I don't like. like this, is, this is why I don't like Seinfeld. I don't like it either. It's like I spend a lot of time with people who I have to tolerate who are really horrible human beings. I'm yes. not spending my leisure time with those same people. Yes. Like, fuck that. Yes. Oh, God, I thought I was alone. No, you're you're really not. And it's weird when I try to explain 
to people who love the show, like, no, I really was, I never thought it was like falling down funny Yep. and I never really liked any of them. And I was like, these people suck. I don't want to hang out with them. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I'm just like nodding my head like a bobblehead right now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So last question. What books are you loving other than the Shelley Lawrenston series? Is there any other books you want to tell people about? Well, I recently um, made one of my biannual forays into nonfiction, uh, nonfiction of my own volition. Uh, and I read Rebecca Traister's All the Single Ladies, Ooh. which is like world-changing genius. I, I think it, it it's a cultural history of how single women have existed in America and how the current, the, the average age of marriage for Americans over the past 50 years, like from 1960 to 2010 went up like nine years. Wow. And the social effects of more people spending a decade of their adult life single have been substantial, substantial. And, and this book, I, I, I was reading it on paper um, and so I'm, I, I, I do very little reading on paper anymore. And so I'm lying in bed and I like turn over and the light's not consistent and on. And I'm like, God damn it. Paper books. <laughs> God, I have to, I have to deal with the laws of fucking light and physics. Yeah. And it wasn't, it was a library hardcover. And so I'm not like shoving it in my purse to take to work every day. So I'm only reading it in bed at night. And it was preventing me from sleeping because I kept like putting the book down and fist pumping or like getting teary about injustice. It's, it's remarkable. I think a lot of romance readers would like it because it's describing the social shifts that have made way for the contemporaries we like. Yes. Like these competence porn contemporaries that I adore, Julie James and Nora Roberts, um, that shit would not have existed 40 years ago because your heroine was supposed to be a 19-year-old stable girl. Yep. Uh, Whose life began when she partnered with some guy. Exactly. And instead we have these heroines who are running multinational corporations or are, you know. Running their own businesses. Running their own businesses, starting their own businesses, moving to new towns and starting over. Like there are options for life that were unavailable to thousands of generations. And I find that great to read about. I'm personally finding it pretty great to live. Yep. And, uh, and this book is remarkable and I think everyone should read it. I uh, totally want to read it now. It's so good. It's and I so- mean, and I'm one of those weirdos. Like I met my husband when we were 17 and we've been together since we were 19. We got married when we were 25. <laughs> so like a, it's super nauseating and B it's really weird. Like, yeah, and we talk about like, oh my gosh, if we were single, what the fuck would we do? Like, uh, I, it's terrible, by the way. <laughs> I am, I am so aware because I hear how. Oh my goodness! I came home on Wednesday night after being stood up for a date that I didn't actually want to go on, Ugh. and I'm I'm texting a friend of mine as I walked home in the rain, fucker, and. Uh, and I'm, I'm like, I just feel like emailing all of my married friends and being like, be real nice to your spouse tonight. <laughs> like, do some everyone. unreciprocated oral sex because yes. it is terrible out here. <laughs> Ugh. And the, and the, have you seen the meta filter thread about emotional labor? I have. Yes, I they, have. That okay? A, it that does blew not my convince mind. me to want to get married. <laughs> Seriously, it blew my mind. 
because yeah. it, 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 it gave a name to so many things that I see performed, like in my husband's parents' marriage and in my friends' marriages. And it's like, you know, do you know this? This has a name. There's a viable reason why you're exhausted. Mm-hmm. It's because emotional labor, no one gives you credit and attention for doing what you do. And they're like, oh, my God. Yeah. And the idea that all, all these women are like, fuck this shit. I'm going to Crone Island. I, I would like to visit Crown Island. I, mean, I adore my husband and I love my family and I work very hard on my marriage, which yeah. is one of the things I've learned from romances that, you know, happy endings actually take a long time work and courtship is everlasting. But yeah, you know, happy endings are kind of the beginning of a thing. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I love, I love my life. Yeah. There's a, another, uh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm beating everybody I know over the head with this Rebecca Traster book, but she makes another, a really fine point about the other side of this you know, spending the first decade or two of your adult life single is that you have to do everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you go out and earn a living and then come home and make your own dinner and do your own laundry. And my car needs to go to the shop before I go on vacation in a couple of weeks. And it it can, obviously I'm not caring for a bunch of small humans, uh, but just taking care of me can get pretty goddamn tiring. Oh yeah, adulting is exhausting. And adulting no is so tiring. Adulting, no one ever tells you. Someone, I wish someone else would pay it. <laughs> I'm just writing this down because I have to remember to buy this book. It's yeah, it's amazing. Um, I recommend it. So uh, tell me this before before I let you go and do a, do awesome things with your Saturday. <laughs> you have read all of these books. Is there anything you wish that writers would do a little bit differently? As a an editor or as a reader? Either. Hmm. Well, sometimes uh, I think it would help to uh, run spell check before they turn their book in. What? <laughs> there are some people who do not seem to have done that. Oh, come on. Uh, that's a real damn easy thing to do. I think, a lo- I think a lot of writers probably turn it off while they're writing. Um, so it doesn't distract them? So it doesn't distract them with the red squiggly line. That's mm-hmm. very distracting and inhibiting to... Uh, you know, to creativity. And I understand you just turn it on before you send it to your editor. (laughs) I actually have to, sometimes if I'm having a really hard time writing something, Mm -hmm. I have to turn my screen black Yeah, and not be able to read what I'm writing. Or I turn my head and look out the window while I'm writing and don't look at the, because the writing and the reading are two different parts of my brain, I think. Interesting. Yeah. The, the, the times that I have I, I don't write much, but the times that I have in the past few years, I've been most productive on Amtrak. Yep. And you can just sort of type and look out the window. Yep. And you and you don't you don't you don't read what you're writing and edit it while you're writing it. Right. Like, that's right. a separate process. Right. I I always had a hard time with that. It's uh it's real hard to get my inner editor to shut up. I, I uh, can imagine because you yeah. are one. The uh the a thing that I I just uh, that I would like. Let me see how I can say this. Well, I could read a few fewer books with uh, plot moppets and surprise babies. Um, Please, please make your grown ass adult contemporary characters use birth control. Uh, it's, it's one of my pet peeves there. I've read like two books that do that plot line really well. And one of them was by Kat Latham. Uh, the characters, like the the woman was like a public health professional and was taking birth control and got pregnant because of antibiotics. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's reasonable. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, but every other time, and especially when it's these 
younger woman who gets knocked up by her boss and then he takes over her life. Like that is a fucking nightmare. I, I do not care for those, you know, Greek tycoons, virgin secretary nonsense. <laughs> I can understand. I, I, yeah, I can't think of anything worse than being tied for life to someone you don't know very well who starts to like tell you what to do. Yeah. So you had a one night bang stand with, and now it's permanent. Right. Because abortion and birth control don't exist consistently in romance land. They really don't. What's that about? The, 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 I guess the primary thing that I want in the books I read and the books I work on is for them to take place in the world that we live in, unless they are explicitly in another world. Right. In a historical era. Right. Like, I am often distracted by practical considerations when I'm working. Like, I don't think your cupcake shop is supporting you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, There's a lot greater need for cupcakes in romance land than there is in the real world. There really is. I mean, no one's opening like a gluten-free cupcake shop. Uh, it was um, Courtney Milan's Trade Me that really opened my eyes to a lot of things that happen in contemporaries that are ridiculous. Like I loved on your podcast the way she talked about how she couldn't read billionaire romances because mm -hmm. she's like, this guy obviously is hiding all his money in the Caymans and that is not super heroic. Nope. Yeah. Clearly. I mean, there's no way that he can do that. Yeah. It's just like, not possible. You are unscrupulous, and that makes you unheroic to me. And um, you, you probably have set up many, many shelters so that you don't have to pay taxes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're going to have that surprise baby with your secretary and then start like putting shell corporations in the baby's name, and that's just shitty behavior. The primary thing that I would encourage writers to do to have better relations with their copy editor and better results from their copy edit is to uh, convey their intentions. Um, explicitly at the beginning. Use your words. <laughs> Use your words. Uh, if the writer or the publisher has an established style sheet for a series and you're not going back to the same copy editor with every book, share that style sheet with the new copy editor. Oh, so like consistency and information is important. They are important. Those are, those are big deals with me. Um, yeah. And, and I'm, yeah, practical considerations, how these people exist in the world that we live in, and being clear about what you intend with your book. That's really it. Sounds like good advice to me. And that is all for this episode. I want to thank Sarah Brady for hanging out with me and for copy editing so many romance novels that I have very likely enjoyed, and including my own, too. This podcast was brought to you by Clean Break, a new novel from Abby Vegas that blends chick lit and romantic suspense into one irresistible New York story. It's Bridget Jones meets Beauty and the Beast. The wall-to-wall -wall books blog reviewed it as amazing, saying once in a while you run across a book and you just really connect to it, like the author knew exactly the kind of book you loved and hit it spot on. This was one of those books. And Feeding My Addiction book review says if there was an award for breakthrough author, I would nominate Abby Vegas. Clean Break is on sale everywhere books are sold. The transcript this month is sponsored by Kensington, publishers of Into the Whirlwind by New York Times bestselling author Kat Martin. The shirtless saviors of Boss Inc. are back. When her son is kidnapped, Megan O'Brien can't think of anywhere to turn but to Boss Inc. and her former flame and bodyguard, Dirk Reynolds. The few clues they find send them spiraling into Seattle's dangerous and dark criminal underbelly. Kat Martin's signature spine-tingling suspense unforgettable action and passion that made her a household name 
is on display in Into the Whirlwind. Everyone wants a shirtless savior. On sale now wherever books are sold. If you have had a look or sponsored a pledge or even just looked at the tweet or in the mentions about it, I want to thank you. The podcast has a Patreon at patreon.com smartbitches. Monthly pledges starting with as little as $1 will help me reach goals like commissioning transcripts and upgrading some of the equipment. So if you've had a look, if you've sponsored, if you've thought about it, thank you. I really appreciate your support. Our music is provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This is the Peat Bog Fairies. This is their album, Black House. And this track is called The Dragon's Apprentice, which I really like because dragons. You can find this album at Amazon or iTunes or wherever you buy your funky, funky music. And now it is time for some compliments, and I am really enjoying this part. Becky, people you don't know would gladly help you move anytime, anywhere. Maggie, if you rode around the room on a Roomba looking confused, that YouTube segment would go viral faster than any other. Rebecca, you're better than an everlasting guitar solo. Tina, you are always dependable and consistently the coolest person in the room, every room. And Megan, operas and really good pop songs will be written about the warmth of your smile. If you're wondering what's going on, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. This is one of the ways I want to thank the people who are sponsoring and supporting the show because all of you guys are awesome. And another way in which all of you are awesome is that you are here. Thank you so much for tuning in and hanging out with me. I really, really appreciate it. If you've got suggestions or ideas or you have bad copy editor jokes, email me, sarah at smartpitchestrashybooks.com. And on behalf of Sarah Brady and Sarah Me and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend. And then I got stood up for a date on Wednesday. And Motherfucker. It, it has rained every day. And it's just, it has not been good. It's not okay. Yeah, I know. I just realized that my window is open because it's somewhat nice outside. Yeah. And I just screamed, motherfucker. <laughs> I'm looking outside <laughs> to see if my neighbor's kids are outside. Yeah, I just okay. went outside to drag my my pots that have tomatoes and tomatillos planted in them mm -hmm. into the sun. Good plan. Because uh, my, my backyard has a fence around it, so that blocks, and also there's a house next door that blocks some of the sun, and I just want them to get all they can, because I planted them last weekend, and they have not seen the sun. You know, I planted, I, I do a vegetable garden in straw bales, mm -hmm. because when Ooh. we lived in Jersey, our soil was terrible, and, I, and it, it worked so well. That's neat. Oh, it's super cool. I learned everything from this ebook that I got on sale, but basically <laughs> you, you can start 
two weeks before the frost date typically because you basically put um, lawn fertilizer, like grass fertilizer, in a bunch of straw bales and wet them down so that the inside of the straw bale starts to compost and compost is warm. Yeah. So you can plant seedlings and then cover it with a plastic cover um, and that keeps it nice and warm. So you can start growing vegetables early and then keep them going late and there's no weeds because it's not in the ground, it's in a bunch of straw. That's neat. So it's like super automated, low... Uh, low impact and low stress and really low involvement vegetable garden. But I did the whole bale conditioning thing and then it was like 32 degrees yeah. for yeah. a week. Yeah. And so I am late with my vegetables. I, I will have to tell my dad about that. He is, he is the, the gardener in our family has been for 20 years. Oh, the lady who has been cutting his hair uh, since I was a child who uh -huh. cuts my brother's hairs and my nephew's hair um, is from Korea. And my dad brings her tomatoes and cabbage and she has stopped charging him for haircuts. Aww. Basically, they're on a barter system at this point. <laughs> that is adorable. It is. It's so cute. Um, but yeah, he, we, we went to the garden center last week and got all the seedlings for the tomatoes and the peppers. And then we had this hideous week i know it was like misery and grayness and rain 30 degrees what is this crap yeah it, it i can only tell you you know as a, a recent arrival to the area this is not usual no but neither <laughs> this is was not what may usually look like this is this is this this and three and a half feet of snow also not usual yeah 